welcome to Women at Warp, a Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name's Jara, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are Andy. Hello. And Sue. Hi there. And our main topic today is the classic Star Trek episode, City on the Edge of Forever. But before we get into that, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. First of all, our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries. Visit patreon.com slash women at warp. And if you're looking for a podcast merch, check out our Tee Public store. There are so many designs with new ones being added all the time. The designs come on so much more than just t-shirts. There's coffee cups, there's masks, there's notebooks, there's stickers, etc. Lots of cool stuff. Find it at tpublic.com slash stores slash women at warp. And we also have a special announcement today, uh, which is that we have some birthdays coming up. Uh, Matt and Gray's birthdays, which are coming up on... (gasps) Wait! They're no longer on the calendar. (laughs) Oh, no! What happened? (laughs) Something must have been set wrong in history. (laughs) We have to go back. Edith Keeler must die. (laughs) Oh, they just reappeared again. I guess uh, the... (laughs) Uh, February 15th, apparently, uh, the Enterprise crew must have gone back and um, let someone get hit by a truck. Um, (laughs) Well, thanks to them for that. (laughs) Um, But uh, seriously, very, very, very happy birthday to Matt and Gray. And uh, hopefully uh, you don't get accidentally wiped out of existence ever again. Knock on wood. Yeah. All right, so City on the Edge of Forever, which I just coincidentally to that whole thing that just happened. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like, do we have to summarize this episode because it's so classic? I think yes. But also, I would just like to say that my initial reaction to rewatching this episode is this one is a banger. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those episodes that for me is a lot like like the Star Trek 4, the one with the whales, right? Where I kind of forget the framing story because of the stuff in the middle. <laughs> oh, totally. And I mean, I think that's also partly because the framing story changed so significantly from the original drafts. And uh, we, we'll go into this a bit. We did have a request from one of our Twitter followers to, uh, to go into the script differences. But if I was going to summarize this in let's see if i can do it in three sentences and mccoy goes temporarily mad and goes down to a planet where he jumps through a time portal and ends up in the past and as a result the nazis win world war ii (laughs) kirk and spock follow him through the time portal which is called the guardian of forever and they figure out that what needs to happen for the Nazis to not win World War II is that a woman who runs a soup kitchen named Edith Keeler has to die. So they let her die. The Nazis don't win World War II, and they find Dr. McCoy, and they all go home, and it's sad. Oh, and Kirk and Edith Keeler fall in love in between. She's a social worker and activist. Yes. I, I don't think it's fair to call her a woman who runs a soup kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm very much looking forward to talking more about the the woman that the real life character that she's based on. But yes, that is correct. Uh, as as with her real life inspiration, Edith Keeler is uh, one of the more complex Kirk love interests. We talked a fair amount about her in one of our very first episodes on Kirk's love interests. I definitely feel like she came out towards the top of the pack on that one. Well, I think she's like a, a super interesting, complex character that like for once doesn't boil down to Kirk's love interest. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a, a lot of a lot of the female characters on the show, like ev- everything that they are just kind of boils down to that. Whereas she actually has her own arc and motivations and all of those things that are usually missing, which is nice. Mm. More of that, please. Yeah. You know, in rewatching this episode, I was thinking back to our Mirror Universe speculation episode mm-hmm. uh, when we were trying to find, like, the, the divergence point 
between the mirror universe and the prime universe. And I started wondering if it was this event. Mm, uh, that could make sense. Because the, the earliest time I think that we could determine from canon of, of a divergent point was World War II. I've heard that theory before. Hmm. That um, this, is, this was the genesis of the mirror universe. I think it's a cool idea. I don't know if we'll ever know for sure or that we should ever know for sure. But I, I certainly like tying it back into kind of like the larger mythology of the show, I think is fun. Hmm. That's super interesting. It also means that like, if you're going to carry that forward. So at the beginning of the episode, they go down to this planet where there's the Guardian of Forever. And after McCoy disappears through it, they can no longer contact the Enterprise. And so Kirk basically says, like, we're going to go through. Uhura and Scotty, you should just go make your own lives somewhere and like just live as best you can sorry bye it's like actually a like it's a very high stakes moment but that would mean that prime uhura and scotty are also were in the mirror universe just having lost everything I, i think that's too much time travel and parallel universes to examine in this episode that is not about that (laughs) but it's still a fun thought exercise well, one parallel universe that we should look at a little bit is the the original outline and scripts, multiple scripts by uh, Harlan Ellison. And I will say that there's a lot of back and forth that you can find if you read These Are the Voyages. Um, it's also referenced in Inside Star Trek, The Real Story by Bob Justman and Herb Solo. And if uh, you read those, you will get the full sausage fest <laughs> outlined um, about all the uh, back and forth disputes between Harlan Ellison and Gene Ronbury on whose script was better. But how much do you folks know about this, the whole dispute and, and what was changed from the original? The only thing I remember hearing is that Harlan Ellison wanted it to be much more pure sci-fi and he didn't like jazzing it up with all of the character beats. Mm, So there's definitely some truth to that. I think that largely what people seem to be able to agree on is that Harlan Ellison's original concepts would have been like really, really ridiculously expensive to produce. And he was someone that Gene Roddenberry approached very early on, along with Robert Bloch and and Theodore Sturgeon and and some other classic sci-fi writers to like give Star Trek sci-fi cred. Before we get letters, I believe it's Robert Bloch. Oh, thank you. But he also was quite the procrastinator. And so after the first couple outlines, especially when people kept giving him feedback to cut things or change things to make them cheaper, he really started to, like kind of dragging his feet, turning in other scripts and really didn't like the proposed changes that they were making to to try to kind of eliminate what the producer saw as like unnecessarily expensive moments or new characters like so McCoy for example wasn't originally a featured character but they're like well we're already paying this actor so why are we going to hire this guy to play a guest crew member we've never met when it could just be Dr. McCoy same with like Scotty um having a role like originally the idea was that there would be a random crew member who is a drug dealer, and when the person he is supplying drugs to threatens to report him to Kirk, he kills the man, and he flees down to the planet to escape. Oh, no, sorry, he doesn't flee down to the planet. He's actually put to trial and then sentenced to death by firing squad on the nearest planet. What the? Yeah, <laughs> so partly this was that he was also writing it before much of the show had even happened. So they were filming some of the first episodes, but he didn't really have a good sense of what Gene Roddenberry was going for. He thought that it should be like any other military ship where you would have some kind of shady characters. And so originally it's it's this guy who's a drug dealer and a murderer who flees through the portal when they go down to this planet to shoot him. Okay, so I have thoughts on some of Gene Roddenberry's writing decisions over time. But in this case, Team Gene's vision. Mm-hmm. That's that's all very ridiculous. It doesn't fit in Star Trek. It also undermines a lot of the themes of this episode. And just overall, sounds like terrible ideas that should have been cut. And uh, if he's still salty about it, he can cry more. 
Well, he, he's dead now, but... Uh, I, I almost said he can die mad about it, but then I figured he was probably already dead, so I didn't say that. <laughs> there were, so there were other things that kind of diverged from the way that the characters were written, and other things just like, you know, he wrote um, a part for, for Janice Rand in it, who by that time was no longer on the show. Another thing that, that was cited as sort of not really adhering to the character was that when Spock and Kirk arrive on Earth... Um, in the past, they encounter a man who's kind of whipping up uh, people who are uh, homeless um, into kind of a frenzy against the foreigners. And Spock and Kirk get like chased by this mob. And Spock gets like really upset about how, you know, humans are, are barbarians. And, and there's some language in the original that calls them, you know, like more savage than any like aboriginal culture or something like that, which is gross then like basically tells like spock yells at kirk like i should have left you to the mob so obviously like that kind of stuff wasn't where the characters were going and so there was a bit of a misunderstanding there um and then there was just stuff that was really expensive like the guardians of forever were supposed to be nine foot tall like a a group of nine foot tall giants uh now that could have been cool (laughs) yeah and then it was supposed to be like rain falling between pillars um so the he was like quite disappointed with the the what the final guardian of forever looked like i mean sorry (laughs) they also wanted when they they did say well you know basically we can't have our crew member dealing drugs and killing someone um i'm sorry that's just funny like um actually that's not quite the vibe (laughs) yeah then they said, basically, well, we have to make someone go temporarily mad, and he wanted them to be bitten by an alien dog, and <laughs> Robert Justman pointed out, like, do you remember how hard it was to try to make a dog look alien before? <laughs> the unicorn dog! Classic. Iconic. And so, DC Fontana came up with Cordrazine, and the thing about, like, McCoy accidentally injecting himself... So I will say that I do feel like that framing device is the weakest part of this episode, but it's also just, it's not really that big of a deal. It's just a framing device, really. It's just a a way to get them from place to place. If they'd had more time, maybe they could have come up with something that made a little bit more sense and was cooler, but like, it's not as bad as this dude thinks it was. Maybe it's a difference, right, between 60s TV and today's TV. But I think if this episode were made today, you know, in in alternate universe land, that we wouldn't have had that framing device. Like, we're so used to our starships are, oh, they show up at a planet and they beam down and they look around. Yeah, but, like, it's not Doctor Who. They don't have time travel usually. There has to be, like, a reason. But, like, hey, go investigate this temporal anomaly. Okay. Yeah, but why would they run through it? Maybe they get sucked through it. See? Fixed. Done. And you can you can lose that entire weird framing story yeah that's a good idea it also makes me think of the question like this this idea of hiring famous science fiction writers to write for your tv show was brand new is it a good idea especially when you're i mean this is the end of the first season so it's written far before this before you know before any much is produced is what i'm trying to say and you haven't quite established character yet and you haven't established a lot of your show and your vibe and your your tone so i know like oh neil gaiman's coming in to write some doctor who okay great but you know neil gaiman was a fan of doctor who growing up there was no star trek to be a fan of before this point where these writers are writing these episodes in their style not necessarily in the show's style i mean i think it's not a bad idea especially if you're doing like pitching as long as it's super clear that, like, in the end, your ideas may not survive. And I think that's where you start to run into problems is you get a guy like Harlan Ellison who's like, my precious, precious words. They could never be, you know, improved or whatever. How dare you touch my words? Yeah, exactly. And, and like, nowadays TV writing is a much more understood craft. And, like, if you get someone like Neil Gaiman, even if it's a new show, he's going to understand that, like – He's writing a part of a whole. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Harlan Ellison is just kind of a singular writer and not really into collaborating like that um, and not used to that process. So probably just a mix of ego and communication issues and just difference of time. And 
But I still like the idea of having, like, cool sci-fi writers who have cool ideas come in and, like, pitch ideas that then get developed by, you know, the team that's working on the show. I mean, the Snod was was writing novels before she wrote for Star Trek. But, yeah, I mean, as you point out, like, there was more Star Trek out by that point. But also, if Jean hadn't approached these sci-fi writers, then we never would have ended up with such gems as Wolf in the Fold. (laughs) Uh, That was sarcasm, folks. I think they cracked her code. Yes. I don't know. Overall, I think it was an idea worth trying and but like there was just so the egos were really big in in this uh particular situation definitely seems like robert justman was kind of the felt the closest to the original story and was like we can't afford to make this but it's beautiful and what i think is maybe the best behind the scenes memo i've ever read which is Robert Justman saying, sometimes I get the feeling the only way we could achieve a Star Trek segment on budget would be to have 60 minutes of Mr. Spock playing kazoo solo as Captain Kirk holds him in his arms while standing in a telephone booth. Would watch. Yeah. Yeah, I would be down for that. (laughs) And the thing is, is like, to me, the strengths of this episode are the ideas and the character moments. So like, that you can always do on a budget. Yeah. I mean, what I'll say is, uh, and I think this this probably finishes summarizing the major differences, that, that maybe one of the most significant differences is in the original, Kirk and Spock go down to the planet and the Guardian of Forever says, history has been set out of whack because your crew, crew member Beckwith let this person, Edith Kessler or something was her original name, let her die. So you need to go back and fix this. And then Edith doesn't actually show up until basically Act 3. And so... They both, like, change that so that they don't go down knowing exactly what they're there to solve. But also, um, DC Fontana wanted to, like, bring up the relationship and and build it up more slowly and meaningfully. And I think that most of us would agree that was successful. Correct. Correct decision. And honestly, I really like the cold open. I'm not such a fan of the whole McCoy injection stuff but like the rest of it is really good it's immediately interesting and like it throws you right into the plot while still maintaining like what's happening it's really well done i am a fan of deforest kelly's reaction acting oh he is so good in this episode they are all so good in this episode and he just sells the hell out of this um he's so he's it's like so over the top but like still believable and he still has that warmth at the end like i genuinely think he turned in such a powerhouse performance in this one such a fan like do do i think that he needed to be injected with goo no Do I enjoy the results of the acting that he brought to us? Heck yes. Bring it. Yeah. I mean, I would encourage if people are curious to go and and seek out uh, more of the story. You can also find the graphic novels of Harlan Ellison's version of City on the Edge of Forever, which someone actually drew like a Harlan Ellison cameo into um, because that is that is the level of his ego. But (laughs) it is interesting. And I think that that largely like it does seem like the writer's you know, agreed that in adapting it, they did lose something of, of like this, the beauty and the style of the original, even if we all agree that it might not have made a very good Star Trek episode. Yeah. So looking at the episode itself, did you have any uh, thoughts on how it turned out? Any themes or moments you want to raise? I'm sorry, did I not cover it all when I said it was a banger? (laughs) No, I really, really love this episode. This was the second time I've seen it, so it's still pretty fresh for me. And I still just, like, I was was watching it, I was like, this is, like, the sci-fi rom-com of my dreams. It's really well-paced. The acting performances are all amazing. I actually truly believe the chemistry between Edith Keeler and Kirk this might be my favorite sassy Spock episode. He's so sassy and it's so entertaining. It's pretty much with the exception of the McCoy framing, which I still think is overall the weakest part of this episode, even though I don't mind it. And the super cringy racist uh, storytelling about Spock being Chinese or whatever. 
I would say this is as close to perfect as a Star Trek episode gets, especially since it's just like it's tackling these lofty ideas, but it's doing it in such a human way and focusing it through the prism of like our characters and their feelings, which is always my preference. So, yeah, as I said, banger. So this is my very much, I think, my my asexual perspective, but it's always kind of bothered me that Kirk is in love with Edith Keeler. I mean, I don't know how long they've been there. I don't know how long it takes people to fall in love. But, like, being in love with her shouldn't be necessary for not wanting to see her die. Mm. True. But I still think it's, you know, they had a connection that they explored quite beautifully, I thought. I don't think that, from a storytelling perspective, them falling in love is necessary. But I think it adds an extra dimension to the sadness, I guess. Yeah, I would agree. Like, I think it shouldn't be necessary. And actually in, um, I believe it's in the original, uh, Kirk can't bring himself to let her die and Spock has to. But I think that it, it, it's, it adds more to the the sense of like pain at the end of it because he's not just able to be like an objective starfleet officer but like there are obviously other ways of caring deeply about someone but doesn't that just mean that she's fridged essentially Mm, i wouldn't agree because i i think that like i think that she gets a fair amount of you know, fleshing out of her character. And they also talk about her impact and like how, you know, she had the right idea, but at the wrong time, like, I think that she, she gets um, enough of a role that it is doesn't count it as fridging in the like, it's, it's not like, not not in the most obvious way. But it's just I guess it's just always kind of bothered me that they have to make it a love story in order for people to show that they care about each other mm-hmm. and not just in this episode like in media in general there doesn't always need to be a love story yeah that's definitely true yeah i think though that like there is a risk of overusing the term fridging for just any time a woman dies and a man is upset about it and like it has to be okay for for people of of all genders to like have to die and have meaningful deaths in in media because death is also a part of life so for me it's more about was the character did we get to see them as they would want to be seen i guess is kind of how i think about it and if you if you have a character that like i mean i would say like kalar who we get some good moments with but like ultimately their death has like zero influence on the plot other than just to make Worf upset whereas like edith keeler's death is actually quite important to the plot it's a fair point for sure Plus, they just look so cute at each other. When it when it comes to shipping, nothing pings my shipper heart like gazing longingly. That's that's the thing. Like kissing, meh. Okay, fine, I'll take it. But it's the staring that gets me. And they do some epic staring. And also, I would like to add, if you are a uh, Kirk Spock shipper, this one's pretty funny. Oh, so good. It's so funny. The whole time Spock is like, really, man? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and there's that epic uh, shipper, Kirk Spock shipper line where, um, you know, Spock is like, basically, where do we belong? And she's like, you at his side, where you always have been and always will be, or basically something like that. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you're right. (laughs) Well played. I mean, I definitely think there's a way to read it as Spock being jealous in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some times when they focus on his face in in a conversation where his reaction should not really be necessary, or at least not to the extent that they keep flashing back to his face, especially since his face is annoyed. So to me, it like reads as is jealousy. I don't know if they did that on purpose and we're just trying to portray like platonic jealousy or just like him being annoyed with Kirk being all flirty when you know they've got like shit to do. I don't know, but I feel like there's a, a case to be made for reading it that way. And it's certainly very funny. Yeah, or maybe he's like disapproving because he recognizes that like anything they do has the potential to mess up the timeline. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of ways to interpret it, I think. Which is the joy of Spock as a character to me. Because his 
his feelings are so nuanced and also he doesn't express them very strongly, Mm -hmm. you can make a case for lots of different feelings for him. I do like also that part of the reason that he falls for her is because of her optimism, that like she almost belongs in the future uh, based on her, the way that she views the world and, and wants to see peace and um, our uh, listener and, and friend of the show, Annika, uh, said, I dream of the AU where the s- solution is to bring Edith to the future. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, there's a line where Kirk and, and, and Edith Keeler are talking and she says something about how she really wants to live in a world where like they spend the money on instead of spending the money on war and death and Kirk's like, they spend it on life. And she's like, exactly. And I'm just like, Oh God, I want to go to there too, girl. Like it's the same struggle that we have, you know, Mm -hmm. 50 some years later or whatever. That's one reason why, you know, some of Harlan Ellison, like trying to keep, you know, his original stories, like the optimism of Star Trek, especially the original series was just so inspiring that to me, like that exchange is just like gets to the heart of why I love Star Trek. Like not only are they looking towards a brighter future, but they're explicitly saying that that brighter future is one where war doesn't exist and we spend our money on life. So like you, it, it kills me that people think Star Trek is not political. Look at this episode, which is one of the most like quintessential Star Trek episodes ever. Ever, and it's it, very political. It's it's explicitly making a value judgment on what our current society spends its money on and deems as important. And I don't understand how you could miss it. It's interesting to me that they portray her almost as a prophet. You know, especially when she's talking about what will be possible in the future. Yep. Harnessing energy. How is a social worker going to know about splitting the atom? Especially because it was like in the 30s. Yeah, right. (laughs) And spaceships other than like in in movies or or books. Mm -hmm. And it's a a very Roddenberry speech. Um, But this, the the note in our outline that Ellison called it dopey utopian bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) is super great but also like a great description of star trek yes i love yeah i love it sign me up we need to put that on a (laughs) t-shirt well i mean like you talk about how she's like framed as a prophet it's completely true but she's also framed as like like specifically a leftist yeah Mm -hmm. i I mean re-watching it now you know years later because the first time I watched this was probably 2014 or so. So it's been a, it's been a rough couple years, y'all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Watching this, you know, with, you know, 2022 eyes is very like, homegirl was a comrade. Okay, so do you want to hear about the real person that Edith Keeler was based on? Absolutely. I'm I'm going to fill in Grace's role in this episode of the digression uh, historical trivia. Although there's no murder, but there is a potentially fake kidnapping. Ooh. So have either of you heard of uh, Amy Semple McPherson? No. Yes, McPherson. McPherson. Okay. So Harlan Ellison was reading a biography about her and thought – what would happen if Kirk met someone like this who was like so good and pure and decent, but basically had to die for history to be put right? So, so Sue, what do you know about Amy Semple McPherson? Well, I know that there is a Broadway musical based on her life. Amazing. Called Scandalous. Okay. Written by, with, with book and lyrics, by Kathy Lee Gifford. Um... This is blowing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It was on Broadway a couple years back, probably a decade or so now. And it was not good, but it was entertaining. (laughs) Hey, I am all for entertaining. Doesn't need to be good. So yeah, I have seen her her life story portrayed on stage. uh, But shout out to Carolee Carmelo, who carried that show on her back. (laughs) Okay, amazing. (laughs) So McPherson was a 
controversial American Pentecostal evangelist and early radio preacher who founded the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. She's a really interesting figure because she both... I would say is a better person and a worse person than Edith Keeler. Yes. Uh-huh. It, by by like my moral standards. Uh, so she definitely was cutting edge for, for women evangelicals in many ways. She, um, she like partly rebelled against some of her mother's uh, Salvation Army uh, teachings as a child by like a- attending movies and dances. She, in high school, she started what turned into a lifelong anti-evolution crusade when she wrote a paper. Uh, she, sorry, she wrote to a paper to protest taxpayer funding funded teaching of evolution in schools and later she supported the prosecution in the scopes monkey trial she married a pentecostal evangelist uh named robert j semple at age 17 and converted and i'm going to skip over some things because there's honestly uh, a lot of interesting stuff in her life well i'll put um an interesting smithsonian magazine article in the show notes but after the end of her second marriage uh, she became a full-time evangelist and faith healer she spoke in tongues and encouraged speaking in tongues and traveled through the u.s and internationally uh, she eventually made her headquarters in la and sunday service were attended by thousands to tens of thousands, depending on who you're asking. And they included patriotic and quasi-religious music played by a 50-piece band, prayers and singing, as well as her sermon. So um, it's a good thing Harlan Ellison didn't put that in the script, because that really, really, really would have been too expensive. <laughs> Some of the, th- the things where you can see the connection. So she opened a commissary at her temple, which offered food, clothing, and blankets uh, to people in need. Uh, she was very active in creating soup kitchens, free clinics, and other charitable activities during the Depression. And she refused to distinguish between the quote-unquote deserving and undeserving poor. Whereas in City on the Edge of Forever, we see Edith Killer make the speech about basically if you're not going to give up the booze, you need to get out. And uh, so like her, her church did a lot of relief work. She supported Hoover, but then supported FDR, and she was, like, very against, you know, saying that she was a member of a party, but she liked what FDR did for the poor. She also patronized unions, saying that basically um, supporting working people, uh, she was essentially talking about working men at the time, getting together to make a better situation for themselves was going to be, like, a better way of using your money than giving it to to the wealthy. So a complicated lady with uh, a nuanced politics here. Oh, it gets wilder. Yeah, so she is perhaps most famous for the time she disappeared for several weeks in 1926 and then turned up in Mexico claiming to have been kidnapped while at the beach. Then when she came back to the States, over 50,000 people turned out to celebrate her return. And Sue, do you want to fill in anything else before I cut right to her death? Because I was trying to save time. Uh, no, I mean those are those are the highlights. The the faith healing and the speaking in tongues and the it definitely made me think of like proto righteous gemstones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the uh, supposed faked kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a lot of controversy about whether she faked it or whether it was real. Yeah, I mean, eventually she she died at age 54 from an overdose of sleeping pills that was declared accidental, and she apparently had some other health problems, so who knows? Essentially, if you're interested in this kind of wild story, look into it. And also, I'm going to be looking into that terrible, terrible musical (laughs) sounds. Oh, it was so bad. Was it, like, bad entertaining? Oh, absolutely. Okay. But also, it was, like... Kathy Lee went and bought a rhyming dictionary. <laughs> That's extremely my jam. As you were listening to each song, like with each line, you could guess the rhyme. And you were like playing that game. And the other, it was it was a, a, a preview night, like a, a, not like a press night, but like a industry night. That's the word. Um, and everybody during act one was like trying to be kind. Right. And, you know, clap in places and not laugh. By act two, literally everybody in the theater was laughing out loud at the show. And it's just so sad because, like, they were trying so hard, but the material was just terrible. And so it was like the justice of musicals. No, but like, <laughs> nobody was buying tickets to it. Nobody. It was, it was hemorrhaging money. But Kathy Lee was also a producer, so she just kept paying for it to keep running. <laughs> I can talk about just that show for an hour, but I won't. (laughs) Um, Supplemental. (laughs) 
Yeah, because I was thinking, I was like, you know, what are we going to talk about that, that other people haven't already talked about about this episode? <laughs> well, there you go. Women at Warp. This is our brand. Obscure musicals and and fake kidnapping plots and like... you Complicated can't, women in history. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so, so Edith Keeler, uh, you can definitely see where some of of those traits came from in terms of her being kind of uh, a bit of a socialist type um although um she was uh Amy Semple McPherson was also very outspoken against communism but uh yeah she she's clearly you know doing charity that's basically what she kind of sees as her mission in life i i do think it's a maybe no loss that they didn't have Joan Collins try to speak in tongues <laughs> <laughs> she could have pulled it off she could have pulled anything off. I mean, they obviously tried to keep it a lot more secular, even though they do say they're on a mission. You don't see, like, a lot of religious stuff in the episode. I was just about to say that. <laughs> and I, I wonder whose influence that was. Do we know? Jeans. But, I mean, was it there in the first draft and then Jean took it out? or? I don't know, but I don't think so. I have read the graphic novels that are based on the original script, and I don't recall it being a super overt theme. And what we do know is that Edith Keeler didn't even show up until act three right. in the original. So there probably just wasn't a lot of time. Like there might've been some like notes about, you know, decor or something that could have led to that. But um, I don't think that that was really Harlan Ellison's aim. Cause missions were to, to my knowledge, very focused on not just helping, but also converting. Yes. And like the Salvation Army, and certainly, I mean, when I first saw this episode, I immediately thought of Guys and Dolls. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was like my frame of, of musical reference where I was just like, oh. Not such an like obscure someone... musical. <laughs> no. Now I want to see Kathy Lee's take on Guys and Dolls. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> okay. We did, have, we did have one listener hot take on Twitter about Edith Keeler, um, who said basically my first impression of Edith Keeler was that she came across as incredibly naive and a bit childish and then basically ducked to avoid the uh, people uh, criticizing the unpopular opinion. But I said, look, unpopular opinions are our jam. Yeah, bring it on. I think that's kind of the point of the episode, isn't it? That like her her ideas were not wrong, but that they were misplaced in the time that they were at and that following those ideas would have led to disaster. I mean, the whole point is that she's naive. Yeah, so would she be someone who's, like, tone policing people online today? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's... Not to this extreme, but, like, it... This discussion reminds me of the discussions we have now about things like toxic positivity. Yeah. Right, where you're just, like, find the good in everything, only focus on the good stuff. Now, sometimes you have to focus and deal with the bad stuff. Yeah, I think the thing that really differs from her to, like, say, political philosophy where it is right now is, like, when it comes to fascist organizing and fascist uprisings, tolerance is not going to get you anywhere. It's just going to get you run over. Mm-hmm. And I think that was true then, and I think it's true now. I And I think that there is definitely, especially maybe a classical liberal idea that you can like talk things through and like if you just get them to see where you're coming from, maybe you can like solve these problems. But that only works if the person or, you know, group or movement that you are trying to oppose has an interest in that and also a moral framework And if they don't have those two things, you're just asking to get crushed. And in the long run, getting crushed by a fascist uprising is going to end with a lot of people dying and hurt. So, you know, if we're talking about, like, what the moral thing is to do in that case, it's, in my opinion, it's to fight. And I think that that's also the, the, the case that they're making in this episode, that the Nazis needed to be opposed. They could not be appeased. 
Yeah, that said, um, I think that so first of all, we actually had two we had two opposing takes on this uh, kind of message on Twitter. One of our uh, listeners at L Ronbo said that we also should think about the era that it was airing, where at the time, the domino theory was the excuse for the US invading Vietnam. And so the message that pacifism would allow an evil empire to win should be or I, I'm going to say could be, they said should be seen as a pro-Vietnam war argument. Although then we we had people reply and say, I had the opposite take, which was essentially what you just articulated, Andy, that it's when there's Nazis around you, you can't just be like, but every can't, why can't we all just get along? Well, I think that that's a, a fair criticism and not wrong. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. certainly like there... The episode itself is set and framed with, you know, World War II, but the show was later than that, and they're absolutely right about the historical context around, like, the political discussions happening then. What I think is that it's, like, these are, like, I I hesitate to even use the word themes, but, like, themes of history. Like, it's circular. It comes back and forth, and I, I do think that that's a fair takeaway. That's not how I read it, but... You know, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong. I really think that genuinely you can usually find a argument to view things in through different framing and change the, I guess, moral conclusions in lots of different ways. So knowing the messages that Roddenberry wanted to put forth, I always took Spock's line of she was right, but at the wrong time to imply and now is the right time Mm -hmm. which would have been 1967 yeah yeah 66 67 Mm -hmm. yeah when the 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 fascists when the fascists have been defeated yeah well or so they thought yeah well and you know there's you know prosperity and hope for the future that's when you you when your your society wants to move forward uh you know and become more progressive Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, both things can also be true. Like we talk about the tension between the intent and the reception and the air, you know, the the point at which it was airing in history and the point that we're at now watching it back all the time. And I mean, for example, the fact that it could be read as like pro-Vietnam War might have, you know, helped it with censors or like, you know, but I'm pretty sure that was not the intention because I I don't think people were thinking of it quite on that level, even though um, certainly we have Vietnam arguments that people were thinking of in other episodes. I mean, I think we see the Vietnam influence much stronger in other episodes. uh, And in those cases, they were mostly anti-war. So I think just from the context of Star Trek, I I struggle to read it as a pro-Vietnam message, but I think you can. Art is so dependent on your own viewpoint. You're always going to see it through your own experiences, and that's part of the joy of it. Yeah, I will say that, like, by and large, the listeners that replied on on Twitter very much loved this episode. You know, had some different reasons why. Another comment that we had uh, was from the Dispatch Ajax podcast uh, that said that it channels the true spirit of Star Trek by challenging its idealism and said that basically we wouldn't have DS9 without it, which it took me a second to kind of wrap my head around that. But I think that they're right that it does. It shows that, you know, the tension between, you know, here's what Star Trek uh, wants to portray as an ideal future, but like these values aren't ahistorical. So by by kind of challenging that, it puts a finer point on what the values are. And then we got a whole series that explores the, the gray areas uh, several decades later. In both history and art, there are usually not easy answers. Yeah, I think it is, it may be fair to re-underline the point about the super racist couple of lines where Kirk is explaining Spock's appearance by saying he's Chinese, which is wrong on multiple levels, um, and the that he got his ears caught in an automatic rice picker. But I think like what is from a modern audience perspective, what is like disappointing to me is like the like, oh wow, Kirk isn't woke moment is like that you want Kirk to know that that's offensive. 
like, you know, Kirk is from a multicultural future where he has Sulu on the bridge, um, who is Japanese-American, and the idea that he would think Spock looks Chinese because I guess I don't I don't even want to speculate like it it's just like it's super offensive and you're just like you want Kirk to know that it's super offensive <laughs> and he's just like yeah this makes logical sense to me well and they do they reference it and and repeat the joke in the next generation 20 years later with data in the big goodbye oh right ugh and it's just still wrong <laughs> It's too bad, too, because, like, the actual delivery of the line and, like, if you took out the racial connotations, it could be really funny. So, you could, like, you can easily see with, like, a little bit of tweaking how how well that scene would have worked. Because it's, it's funny from the sense of Spock trying to have to hide his ears and Kirk having to explain Spock in general is a funny concept. It it sucks that it was dragged down by this, and it's really the only part of the episode that really, truly does not hold up. Yeah, and this was an addition by Gene Kuhn to try to bring some humor into it, and yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that that people at the time probably found it less problematically funny, but yeah, and you're right, like, it could have just been like, oh, he uh, grew up on an orchard and got his head caught in an apple picker or something, like, it didn't have to have... A racist connotation. And it's too bad because the delivery is quite charming. One thing that I'd like to kind of talk about that kind of stands out to me uh, about this episode that I really enjoy is the ending, specifically the tone of the ending. I have a soft spot in my heart for the, oh, shucks, don't we just have a grand adventure endings? I really, really do. I think they're they're charming and a throwback, and like most of the time, they make me smile. The fact that they so starkly did not do this in this episode, I think, makes it even the more powerful. Where Kirk is just depressed at the end of this, and you can feel it coming off of him, and he's just like, "Some days I really hate my job, and today is one of those days." Kind of vibe to him. I really enjoy it, and I I think just tone wise, it's it's really powerful. Yeah, I um I agree. We had another comment from CM two hundred that I think speaks maybe a bit to that the tension around the Harlan Ellison storyline and is this Star Trek where they said this is an outstanding hour of television that proves when you give Shatner the chance to act, he can break your heart. But it also feels like a departure from the format to that point. Is it such a departure that it's no longer Star Trek, though? I'm on the fence. By that, I mean we're used to Kirk battling the alien-slash-moral-dilemma of the week and ultimately learning something about humanity in the process. In City on the Edge of Forever, we ultimately have a love story with a tragic ending. Great television? Undoubtedly. But great Star Trek? I mean, I always struggle against the idea of Star Trek being any one thing anyway. Mm. I mean, you have... you know, Wrath of Khan and the one with the whales and Undiscovered Country and the motion picture all being in the same, like, movie universe, even. And they're all completely different films. So I struggle with this idea of, like, true Star Trek or, like, something that, like, one definition for Star Trek. Because to me, Star Trek is just as much Sub Rosa (laughs) as it is the inner light. Yeah. I see what they're saying in that it's a departure of what there was up to that point. That's fair. But up to that point, there was not even a full season of Star Trek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and now there are 55 years of Star Trek. I mean, it speaks to the quality of the first season of the original series that we, you know, feel that there was such a canonical voice uh, kind of established so early on because, uh, you know... Uh, we wouldn't. We would never necessarily be like, "Oh, we should really hold everyone to what they did at the beginning of the Next Generation for the, f- right. like, the <laughs> first seven episodes." That set the tone, and we should just stick with that. Um, so I think it, it's partly because there was so much great Star Trek in the first season of the original series. So I, I see what the comment is saying about mm-hmm. this being a departure of what came before up to that point. Yeah, but from this point on, this became an episode that set the tone for a lot of the franchise 
And I think in some ways, like, some of the episodes that a lot of people consider great Star Trek are those ones that kind of actually break new ground. Like, in The Pale Moonlight, I know it's divisive, but, like, it is one that a lot of fans consider the best because it was a departure from what came before. I think it goes back to what I was saying about the ending, whereas if you establish conventions and then break them, it it tends to leave more of an impact. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I like that comment. But I'm not entirely sure that I agree with it. Yeah, me too. We got some really good thought-provoking comments on this one. I think it matches the tone of the episode, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. But I I think that grand scheme all all considered, I I land with you, Andy, where as is it Star Trek is not a question I like to ask. And if it has Star Trek on it, it's Star Trek. It contains multitudes. (laughs) And if it hadn't happened, then someone would have to go back in time and fix it, because otherwise the Nazis would win World War II. (laughs) And, well, I guess, no, that would be after. But, you know, history would just be wrong. It'd be a whole thing. We wouldn't have a podcast. (gasps) No, can't. No, not not liking that world. It's terrible. So if I were to rate this episode, I would give it... 9.5 out of 10 Spock ear-hiding hats. Oh, you stole mine. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, to be fair, there aren't a lot of, like, memorable uh, items in this episode. I got another one. The Edith Keeler action figure comes with a teapot and a tray, I believe. Um, I'm also going to go 9.5 out of 10. And I'm going to say 9.5 out of 10 cozy plaid flannel shirts he does look so cozy in this episode i always love seeing uh, kirk and spock out of uniform <laughs> no, but, like really like i do like seeing them in different costumes and and they do get put in a lot of different costumes throughout tos and i always enjoy it another one that i also think is a banger is um what's the uh gangster planet called a uh, piece of the action is the episode. Yeah, I also really like piece of the action, and I love Kirk like sitting back in his his huge suit, putting his feet up. This is the same sort of vibe where he looks like a lumberjack almost, but like an urban lumberjack. I super dig it. Yeah, he was like, you know, a uh, sexy hipster before sexy hipsters were a thing. Yes, definitely. No wonder Edith Keeler fell for him. I think for me. This is, I'm going to take it down a little bit lower and make it 9 out of 10 mnemonic memory circuits. Oh, that's great. Well, are there any final thoughts before we wrap up? Edith Keeler must die. Uh, Amazing. Okay, well, that's about all the time we have for today. Sue, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And Andy, how about you? Yeah, easiest place to find me is Twitter at First Time Trek, where I very rarely live tweet Star Trek. And I'm Jara, and you can find me on Twitter at Jara Penguin. That's J A R R A H Penguin. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com, email us at crew at womenatwarp.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. And thanks so much for listening. this episode uh dopey utopian bullshit <laughs> um i don't think it would appear in itunes if we did can we can we do bs sure i wonder if people reading the title would just think though that we're going to like bash on the episode the whole time well then they would be pleasantly surprised now wouldn't they